Mrs. Juanita Sivright Moran, age 49, of 1313 Stone Street, Jacksonville, wife of Clifton E. Moran, Jr., died Friday. She was a secretary with the Federal Housing and Urban Development Department. She was a member of Chapel Hill Baptist Church and the Order of the Eastern Star. Other survivors are two sons, Roy E. Moran of Dallas and David Moran of Jacksonville. Her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Roy E. Sivright of Little Rock, two brothers, Tony Sivright of Bryant and Bill Boyle of Columbus, Georgia, and a sister, Patricia Parker of North Little Rock. The funeral will be at 10 a.m. at Jacksonville Funeral Home by Liesel Lawson. Burial will be at Pinecrest Memorial Cemetery. March 21st, 1980 was a night that I will never, ever forget. It was a night that I got a phone call, awakened from bed at 11 o'clock at night, and on the other end was my father, and he was absolutely emotionally a basket case. And so the phone quickly went from him to some anonymous person, a male nurse on a floor at the hospital in which my mother, Juanita Jean Sivright, was in. And he said to me, sir, if you can come now, you must. Your mother will not live through the night. There was certainty in his voice. There was no hesitation. It was, your mother will not live through the night. It's 11 at night. I'm in Dallas, Texas. My mother is in Little Rock, Arkansas. Some of you have had this experience. You know what it's like to, to be um, ravaged by emotion suddenly when something you cannot stop, you cannot change, it will not wait for you. It is going to move at a rapid pace, and you aren't prepared emotionally to keep up with it. It's outrunning you. And so in a, a bundle of my own emotion, I knelt by my bed with candy, and, and I prayed, and I begged God. I said, let me, let me tell her I love her one more time, just one more time. You know, oftentimes when you're in those moments, what do you want to say to someone? What do you wish you would have said to them? What do you want them to know is their parting moment on this life? I just wanted to tell her that I loved her one more time. But I didn't get that choice. God answered that prayer very definitively. It was a no. She died almost 10 minutes after that phone call. She had a rare blood disease called polycythemia rubrivera. Get out your phones. Go ahead, Google it right now. Polycythemia rubrivera, just as a, in layman's terms, is the opposite of, of leukemia. She had too many red blood cells, and so she had bleeding spells. And so that night, she bled from her esophagus all the way through her large intestines, and she bled to death internally in minutes. And she was gone like that. That day will forever be etched in my memory. 
I can be traveling along, and I, I can be somewhere, anywhere. I can be in the midst of all kinds of, of things. And yet, March 21st somehow is, is a day of memory. It's, it's one of those days that, that I, I will never forget. See, memory is an interesting thing. It's, uh, it's something that God has uh, designed us with. Uh, and it's, it's very acute. I mean, and I, I know that some of you are saying, my memory's gone, right? You know, but it's your short-term memory. It's you can't remember where you put your car keys 10 minutes ago. That's the, that's the problem. That goes, but the long-term memory, for some reason, it's the long-term memory that really does captivate us. And if we're not careful, uh, it either puts us in a box, it fences us in and, and captivates us in a prison cell, or it releases us to a life to be able to understand our own history. It wasn't until I read a book, and I would recommend this book highly if you if, if you are struggling through the grief process, if you haven't really made it through the grief process, there's a book called A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer. And in it, he shares an illustration that, that really began to set me free. And that illustration was the fact that, well, first of all, I, I don't want to spoil the book for you, but... Sitzer experiences a tragic loss of three members of his family in an instant. And he's left with himself and two other children to move on. And he and his wife had these rituals in their backyard. They had these dreams. And these dreams were of this tree. There was a dead tree in his backyard that, that they wanted to, to sort of cut off and, and make an English tea garden around it because they were both English professors in a university and they loved to sit and read poetry together. And they were dreaming of building this space around this tree. And he goes on to talk about after his wife has died, this place became just a, a bitter pill in his life. It became a place that was hard to sit in and hard to experience because of the pain and the grief of loss suddenly of, of his best friend, of his lover, of, of someone he dreamed of spending the rest of his life with. And she was now suddenly whisked away. And he shares this illustration of, of what he did with that as he began to do what they dreamed of, only do it just a bit differently. And he began then to assimilate the memory of his departed wife into his life. Just that, that small concept, to assimilate the memory, not to be captivated by it, not to be overwhelmed by it, not to have the memory be something he has to avoid or stay away from because it causes such deep pain. But he began to process the loss of the most dear human being to himself in his life. He began to process the anger that he had toward a God who's supposed to be in control of everything and yet somehow allowed 
the most precious person to him be taken away. And as he began to assimilate those memories into his life, his grief process moved. He got unstuck. And he, he began to experience life again after that. You know, for many of us, the memories aren't tragic. They're not necessarily loss of loved ones. Uh, they can be uh, just painful events. Uh, I, I remember in the seventh grade when I was outside after basketball practice with Jeff Myers and, um, and this kid who was really, he was smaller than I was, but he was older than me, and he was a sort of a town hood and a bully, and he was picking on Billy, and he came up to Billy, and, and he was messing around with Billy because Billy's older brother had kicked the crap out of this bully, and so now he was going to take it out on the little brother. And me, being the great savior that I am, decided to step in. And so I thought, I'm, I'm a peacemaker, right? Sort of. Um, so I, I step in. I say, hey, dude, dude, you know, just hey, leave him alone. He, it, it wasn't him. It was his brother. Take it up with his brother. He slaps me. <laughs> he slaps me. I didn't know what to do. I was just, I mean, I'm in peacemaking mode, you know? It's like, hey, man, you know, hey, let's, let's, let's chill, let's cool, you know? It's like, you know, go do what you do, you know? Go rob a car or something, I don't, you know, whatever, whatever hoods do in this little small town of Georgia, you know? Warner Robins, Georgia, where I lived, and, and just go do what you do, and he slaps me. And I was stunned because at that moment, I went into a decision-making mode. I'm trying to figure out what do I do? What do I do? And, and the decision took me so long, he left. <laughs> now, I don't know if he thought, because I was may, maybe about five or six inches taller than him, that I might just, you know, pulverize him, uh, or if what, but, but, but I'm, I'm standing there thinking, wow, that moment in my life has been a moment of a manhood question for me. What does a man do when someone else slaps him? What do you do? Well, growing up at that point in my life, for that memory, I, 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 I assumed sort of the John Wayne thing. I should have just, bam, punched him in the face. Kicked him in the crotch. And as he went down with my knee like that, crush his nose into his skull. And then as he's falling, right cross, boom. And then maybe one more left foot kick to get the left foot in there. That's what I should have done. And from that memory, I had that kind of thing wells up in me over time. And it's probably one moment I was watching a movie, kind of a dirty, hairy type movie. I, I've always loved it when, when the bad guys just get, you know, like, like Shooter. At the end of the, the movie Shooter, when that senator and that consultant are in that space and, and uh, the guy shows up and, and just blows the smithereens out of them, I, I've always got the greatest joy out of those movies. <laughs> I mean, deep, soulful joy. It's like, oh, I love that. And... And I realize I've always been looking for redemption in those kinds of things. 
I've, I've been looking for a way to get back to that moment and, and to, to do what, what my culture, to do what even my parents might have wanted me to do, defend myself. And then I come across Jesus in my life. I begin to follow Jesus and trust what he's saying, and all of a sudden I, I see that he says, Turn the other cheek? Holy crap. That's like the opposite of what I felt. And I began to feel that tugging of, of conflict in that spiritual journey when, when my culture, my upbringing, and everything else gets in the way of what my Father in heaven and what Jesus came and taught and help me to realize that what does a real man do? What does real strength look like? Real strength doesn't pay back evil for evil. And it, it created a moment in me. So I, I have had to redeem my memory. I've had to wash or cleanse my own thinking and how my memory has shaped me. From that moment on, I said to myself, I made a vow. I will never back down. I will never back down. And that hasn't always done me well in life. It has taken me places that I wish I hadn't gone. And it's caused me to do things that I wish I hadn't done. So how do I understand this idea of memorializing? We think back to, to the loss of a loved one and, and how it shapes us. We think back to all those other things in our lives. You and I have, have a, a jury box of people in our lives. And that jury box, some of them are, are voting guilty and some of them are voting innocent. Some of them are... Just horrible critics. Others are great cheerleaders. And oftentimes, we try to pull a curtain over that jury box. And we fail to understand the power of redeeming our memory. You know, there's a reason why social scientists have discovered the stages of grief. It's easy to observe in human beings as they, they move through these different stages and as, as these, these different manifestations of emotion is because as humans, we're made to process the events that come into our life. And when we don't process them, they end up in a sort of a toxic dump in our life. And so our lives are nothing more than sort of a, an an emotional EPA, we're trying to cordon off all of the toxicity. And life just has a lot of it. And it's hard, and we use more and more energy to keep that toxic dump of emotion from affecting us. And our peace index doesn't look really good because the emotions that are given to the past start to overwhelm us. And, 
and those vows that we made, all of a sudden, silently, start to kill us because they move us in directions that we don't really see. It, it, it's like normal. You know, it's, it, it, normal is it, you are normal, right? Yeah, I mean, for, for the most part, you think of yourself as normal. And, and you don't think of me as normal. And I mean, I mean, it's just because, you know, like, and I've, you know, our, our family, my family, if, if we have my favorite meal, it's not steak and potatoes, you know, it's not, uh, you know, ribeye or not, you know, brisket or, you know, God forbid, a uh, pot roast. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's none of that stuff. It's apps. It's salsa and dip and egg rolls and chicken wings. And I mean, just, it's just an array of apps. It's like heaven to me. And some of my kids married kids who came to our house and thought we weren't normal. <laughs> In fact, one of my daughter-in-laws asked early on while dating my son, does your family ever eat normal food? <laughs> like real food, you know? And uh, it's like, no, we kind of just love to app it. That's normal for us. Well, what's normal for you? It's probably not normal for you. And here's the problem is that when we think we're normal, uh, we, we, we normalize our, our experience to everyone. And we all grew up with parents who were sort of gifted or not gifted in certain ways of building you know, emotional security or, or building uh, self-awareness or, or building the ability to communicate, all kinds of things. Our, our parents had varying abilities of transferring those skills to us. And so as a result, when we encounter our memories, we tend to encounter them on the basis of what we think of as normal. There's really only two things I want you to remember today as we leave here. There's just two things. We're not ready to leave, so don't get, you know, in a hurry. I <laughs> get communion up here and all that kind of stuff. A few more songs left, that kind of thing. But, 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 but one thing is, is that to overcome the tyranny of normal, you need community. You need other people who are just like you who think of themselves as normal to rub up against your normal. And when your normal and their normal meet, something amazing happens. You realize that you're both not normal. <laughs> you're unique, but you're not normal. You're not average. You are unique in the upbringings that you have. You are unique in the, the memories that you have. And so you need a tribe, a posse, a crew. You need a group of people around you to help you process your memories. It is so cathartic. It's so cleansing. It's so relieving to tell the story about my mom dying. And, and many of you I know have told me, I, I've heard that a jillion times. You know, it's like, it makes me cry every time. Yeah, it makes me cry every time too. It's a tragic moment in my life. But as I've lived away from it, that was 1980. I've lived two lifetimes on the basis of my mom died at 49. 
I was 25, about to turn 26, graduating from getting my graduate degree in theology at that time. Supposedly, you know, the pinnacle of my life, the, you know, getting to a space that I've always wanted. And yet, my mom's tragically taken from me. I named my oldest child Alyssa Juanita. That was my mom's first name. And so every day, I get an email or some communication from, from Alyssa Juanita at gmail.com. You should e email her and tell her you heard this. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, Alyssa. Um, I, I, I get, you know, it, I'm reminded of her. Every Christmas, I'm reminded my mother always had boys. She had two boys. She had several miscarriages before she had me. She desperately wanted children. She wanted a family. And they tried really, really hard. And so when I came along, you know, they were praying that I would be normal. And you can discern whether that prayer was answered or not. But anyway, um, she always wanted a girl. I remember when I got married first, my brother second, I got married and she asked my wife, Candy, if she could give her a doll for Christmas because she had always wanted a girl and she had always wanted to give her a doll. And so every Christmas when I see my little grandchildren, when I saw my children, I see my grandchildren, my little, I got seven granddaughters. <laughs> seven. My mother would have gone berserk over that. They would have gone broke. She was not good with money. <laughs> but that pain has no longer become debilitating. It, it's become a, a freeing pain. It's become a, a joyous pain. Because when we look at our memories, we oftentimes look at them in terms of a continuum. We fear them or they create a sense of joy. And understanding where we are on that line determines the kind of quality of life that we have. There's this beautiful passage in the Bible. You know, the, the first half of the Bible relates to the, the Hebrews, the, the Jewish nation. And, and they are very big on memory. God had built into their culture this idea of remembering. And so, in the book of Joshua, so, you know, the, the history of it, we get, we get, you know, Adam and Eve and Abraham, and, and we come down to Moses, and, and Moses takes the children of Israel out of the promised land. And, and we all remember, you know, when Cecil B. DeMille was there to film the great crossing of the Red Sea, and, you know, the... The, the walls of water went up. But most people don't realize there was a second parting of the water in the Bible. Th this happened again. Moses dies and Joshua becomes the leader. And Joshua's the new leader. And so he's taking the people now into the space that Moses was supposed to take them. And he takes them across the Jordan River. And, and Joshua... Chapter 3, we get this idea of the river 
party. They walk in with this Ark of the Covenant, this mobile center around which their, their observance of their relationship with God was built. And they walk into this kind of Ark of the Covenant thing as it's walking across. And, and the, once they get about knee deep, the waters part. And then they get the entire nation. Now, we're not talking about a small nation. We're talking a couple million people here at this point. So this is, you know, this is probably worse than the Super Bowl parade. I mean, the logistics, you know, of, of two million people, kids, parents, tents, camping equipment, you know, all that kind of crap they have to take with them. You know, all that stuff's going across it. So they get it all across on the other side. And apparently, as we're reading in, in Joshua chapter 3, as we go down to Joshua chapter 4, the, the water's still parted. And so Joshua gives each tribe, they pick one person out of each tribe, go back into the Jordan River, pick up stones, bring those stones out, and they build an altar. They just build, put this rock thing up here, you know, for those of you that do hiking in the mountains in different places, you know, sometimes they, they do that, they, you know, we take rocks and we put them up there and kind of balance them and stuff, well, they did that kind of thing with it. And in Joshua chapter 4, Joshua says, These, this will be a memorial. So you will remember what God has done here on this day. It was a memory, a beautiful memory of God's miraculous power of parting this sea or this, 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 this river and, and allowing people to cross on dry land and then come back and pick up these rocks. You see... It is possible for you and I to take our memories and, and to redeem them. For, to redeem them in a way that allow us to assimilate the stuff that's happened to us into our lives and for us to live with it, but not live underneath it. I say that unqualified. Because I know in some of your minds you're thinking, yeah, that works for, but not for. And, and you've got the exception. You, you feel like you're the exception to the rule, that, that the pain, the experience that you've had, the injury to your flesh or to your spirit, your soul is so deep and so painful that, that you could never, ever find your way beyond it. But Jesus brought from heaven a new spiritual technology. He, he brought from heaven a, a technology that, that allows us to really begin to process that. It was this idea of confession, of being able to freely confess whatever has happened to us or whatever we have done to freely confess without any fear of retribution. Imagine that. This morning when I drove up here, I, I saw the ubiquitous Pleasant Valley police officer parked in our parking lot. <laughs> Shooting over that hill right there as people come over 
just in a glorious Sunday morning, mind, not minding, you know, minding their own business and just, you know, and if they're going 40 miles an hour, then they're going to, you know, have a $100 bill to pay in Pleasant Valley. You know, it's just like, come on. Not in this parking lot, not on Sunday morning. Come on, come on. But, but imagine, because there, there is a way, and I'll, this is a secret, okay? Uh, for those of you online, this is your secret too to keep. But, but we have not given the Pleasant Valley Police permission to use radar in our parking lot. And if they're on private property and they use that radar, you can get a get-out-of-jail-pass-free because they don't have permission to shoot in our parking lot. All right? So imagine, imagine you're tootling up here on Sunday morning. Oh, crap. And you say worse than that. You know, it's like, oh, man. And, and they pull you over, and you're hoping, you know, no one shows up here early, you know, and sees me in the Shoal Creek parking lot pulled over, you know, and, and they're giving you the ticket. And you show up to the judge, and you tell the judge, hey, judge, I, I know something. I, I would like to see the permission that Shoal Creek has given the Pleasant Valley police to film in your parking, from their parking lot, from a private, well, they can't produce it. So guess what? You get a get-out-of-jail card free. I mean, imagine the feeling of walking out of traffic court winning. (laughs) Have you ever had that? I have. I have. I I fought a ticket long enough so that the officer didn't show up. And so the judge, the fourth time, he, he released me. And I walked out going, yes! One, you know, it feels good. Well, that's nothing like the feeling of what Jesus brought from heaven to earth. And what we're about to partake of here as a celebration in memory of what he did when he died on the cross. And he rose from the dead to demonstrate for you and I that we get a get out of jail card free simply by using the the technology of confession, of acknowledging, looking straight in. You know, confession, homo legeo, the Greek word, just means say the same thing as. And, and I always, when my kids, you know, did something wrong, I always wanted to get them to homo legeo. It, it, it's, it's, you know, if you ever talk to my kids, you'll understand that they didn't grow up normal because they grew up with a father who had a degree in Greek. And so there are all these Greek words that went into their punishment. And, and so they, they would get this, you know, uh, this language lecture about, okay, what did you do? I want you to say the same thing as me, and I want you to mean it. <laughs> that was always the hard part, yeah. But that's what God's asking us to do. So just look straight into our lives Look into the pain. Look into the memory. Look into it and and be able to acknowledge it, confess it, say out loud to yourself and then to a group of people. Let them help you process this. You you need a crew. You need a tribe. you, You need a posse. You need people in your life 
to help you understand that you are not normal. And you need, you need to access this new technology that Jesus brought to us. This idea that we could look the evil in our life, whether we were the perpetrators or not, whether it was done to us or not, we could look into that and, and we could confess. We could say the same thing as God. We could acknowledge the hurt, the pain. We could acknowledge the bitterness, the anger, all that kind of stuff. We could acknowledge it in such a way that it allows us to go free. We have a great opportunity this morning to, to take part in, in something that's been labeled communion, uh, the Lord's table, the Last Supper, or, you know, whatever, whatever tradition you grew up in. But, but we have uh, three stations up here, one on each side of me and, and one in the balcony. That it represents uh, the blood of Jesus, the juice that's there, and then the bread represents his body. It's that technology that he brought when he died in our place so that we could freely acknowledge the fact that we're not normal. In fact, we're far from it. We're in desperate need of someone to love us in ways that we've never been loved before. And when Jesus looks at you and, and he tells you that he loves you, when he helps you understand that you, despite the stuff that's going on, you were bought with a price, the price of his death on the cross. That's how much his love was for you. And so this morning as we, uh, uh, as I finish here, uh, I'll explain a few more things, but, but we have a couple things. You can just stand and, and, and move to this, but before that, uh, there's, there's another station that you might want to take advantage of. Over here, there's a chain link fence and some mirrors, and, and there's some strips of cloth and some pins. For some of us this morning, we are caged in. We are fenced in because we are unwilling to look straight in the mirror and understand the pain, the agony of the memories that keep us in this emotional jail. And what a great opportunity. We're going to have plenty of time here. You don't have to get up and come quickly. But you could move to the station over here, and you could just set. There's some tables here that you could set out. You could pull that piece of cloth out, and you could just write. Write that experience. Maybe you can represent it with a word or a couple of words or a phrase. And then we would love for you to just tie that on the fence. Just leave it there. That today... As a result of, of coming up close to an understanding of what's keeping me in a cage, I want to leave it there. I want to walk away from it. I want to stare my memories in the face. I want to confess. I want to say the same thing that God says. I want this fence to be a memorial stone in my life that I'm beginning the process of assimilating this memory into my life. It's a long road. It may never be over. But you cannot keep it in a toxic, emotional waste heap. It will not stay there. And so this is a great opportunity 
a great opportunity for you just to process that. We've got a lot of music left here. The band's going to play a couple of songs, and I'm going to pray. And as I pray, uh, we just got a, a short video to remind you of this table, remind you of the, the fact that Jesus died. This represents his blood, that his body was broken for you and I, and he rose from the dead. Only person in history that predicted his death and his resurrection and pulled it off. No, only, only person. For me, that's what makes Jesus worth following. And so today, we're going to come and acknowledge that we are his followers. Now, if you still are in question, you're still trying to figure that out, and, 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 and that's not you, that's okay. Just sit, sit there. Just The band will be playing. Those, you can sing along the songs. Words will be on the screen if you want to sing. If not, you can just sit and listen. And just, just enjoy the atmosphere. Feel no compulsion to have to participate in this because it takes time to understand this story about God and Jesus and the truths that he's encased in the Bible and, and what it means for us personally. What it means to, to put on the Jesus jersey and say, I, I'm going to follow Jesus now. I'm, I'm not going to follow myself or anything else. I'm a Jesus follower. And I'm going to live if what he says, as if what he says is true. And so as, as we come this morning, uh, I hope this next few minutes will just be a time where we can make the space between heaven and earth very, very thin. And for you to feel loved. The, the love that God has for you because he sent the most precious gift that existed in all of time and space. That, that moment when God the Father and God the Son decided to do something to bring us back into the family. And it put a crack in their relationship. But they were willing to do that because you are so loved by the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So I'm going to pray short video for you just to prepare yourselves and you can just then move at your own will. If you want to move to the fence and, and enjoy that over there, you want to move here to the communion, or you want to move, uh, if you're in the balcony, you want to move to the, the elements up there, it'd be just fine. So let's pray. Father, we are um, we're stunned by your love for us. Um, if, if this is true, if, if, if the Bible is true, and this story... Uh, of, of your reckless love that you have for us, loving us before we loved you, loving us while we were your enemies, loving us while we're running away from you. Um, Father, we just don't know that kind of love in this world. We don't have any context with any other humans that, that love us in, in such irrational ways. And so this morning, we want to bring our memories to you we want to bring especially those memories that are having a directional impact in our lives. And, and we want to confess that, Father. We want to confess that, that we have attempted to put those behind a, a, a toxic waste dump and keep them hidden. 
We want to pull them out into the light of day. We want to acknowledge that, Father, the hurt and the pain, the bitterness that we feel toward people who have betrayed us, who have injured us. We, we just want to pull that out into the light. And, Father, for some of us today, we need to step out of our life of isolation. We don't have a posse. We don't have a crew. We don't have a tribe. We barely even have friends. Father, we want to acknowledge that maybe the step for us today is to move toward community, to, to move out of isolation into this relationship, to look for spaces where I can get to know people and people can get to know me. Father, we just pray for courage, for courage for this moment, courage that lasts. It's so easy in this moment as music starts to, to feel emotional and have something, have some uh, momentary experience. But Father, we pray for courage that lasts, courage that sustains, courage that moves beyond just an hour on Sunday. Courage that becomes guiding in our lives. Father, give us that kind of courage. Thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your your reckless, irrational love for us. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.